I had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people who gave me some great opportunities. And it was just sort of a situation where one opportunity led to the next. And so it was not ever, okay, I'm not going to do this other path. It was more, man, this is a great challenge. It was following that path of opportunities that led me to where I ended up. Able to fire up any room with his fun-loving nature and his passion for argument, Matt Wiltshire could never be accused of being a homebody. But unable to shake the siren call of his beloved Nashville, he found that home gave opportunity to use the skills he'd gained while away to make things better for the people living there. Find out how making things better is all the sweeter in a place that you love on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. So today I'm here with Matt Wilshire, and we are going to talk about ambitions and paths that meander and bring us home, but always in kind of service of service. So I'm, Matt, I'm inspired already. I can't, wait to, <laughs> I can't wait to hear this podcast after it's recorded. Great. So it's lovely to be with you. Yeah, um, and you. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. So Matt, we start the podcast with the same two questions, and I'm going to ask them of you. When you got to college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you were going to become? You know, it's funny. I think I am probably still the same person I was in seventh grade in <laughs> all the good ways and, and, and bad ways. Probably a whole separate podcast that could be done on the psychology of that. But yeah, I actually feel fairly much the same way as I did then in terms of what what's important to me, what my priorities are, uh, where I thought I'd be. So this this may be uh, an un, a, a, one of your less interesting podcasts in terms of the roads taken, because mine sort of led back to where I thought it would, uh, although there have been some interesting twists and turns along the way. But, but when I went to college, I thought that I would likely go to law school, which I did not do. Um, but I've always been interested in public service, and, uh, and, that's, and that's where I've ended up. Yeah. So I... I knew you in the early days of your college career, and I saw someone who had been steeped in a family tradition and kind of community tradition of being really engaged politically, um, which was definitely not my upbringing. And I admired that in you because you really did kind of speak to the fact that you were going to do good and that you, I actually thought you were going to be a senator or more and kind of really go that kind of elected official kind of route. And, and when we see that there are different ways to serve, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I also know that when you left, that is not what you did. And you went a different way. And some of us might have raised an eyebrow or two. So tell me about really what happened then and, and what the thought process was for like this opportunity after Dartmouth, like what happened then? Sure. I, I think at times it's easy to rewrite the narrative of your path uh, in a way that conforms to a more well thought out narrative. But in fact, as you referenced, when I graduated from college, I ended up going to work in investment banking. Um, ended up doing that for 15 years, investment banking and venture capital. And I really enjoyed that work. What I really enjoyed about it was working with smart people on interesting and creative ideas, fast paced, competitive, and, and, and I loved it. I, I got to work in San Francisco for a couple of years, which is a great city to live in. Got to work in, in New York for seven or eight years, which I enjoyed very much, New York and, and Connecticut, and then came home and continued to do investment banking here in Nashville for four or five years. And along the way, 
did some investing, venture capital and private equity investing and, and really enjoyed that work. It was just really interesting and challenging. And, and so it was, it was great in that regard. But I think it also did afford me the opportunity to think about different ways of solving problems. And in particular, think about market forces, think about unintended consequences and a lot of things that I think in a um, popular, particularly capitalist critique of government, things that government doesn't often think about. And so I think at the end of the day, it has brought me a perspective and skill set that I've found to be pretty useful in in public service. Um, But the short answer is Jamie Hutter is the reason I got into investment banking. He was my roommate, my senior year in college, and I thought that I wanted to go uh, work for a couple of years to save some money for law school. And uh, Jamie went into investment banking. So I went into investment banking and uh, was lucky enough to, to land a, a great job with a firm called Montgomery Securities, which later I bought out in San Francisco. And then that launched this career that went on for 15 years uh, across three cities. And at what point in there did you realize, OK, I'm no longer saving up for law school? You know, there wasn't a particular moment. I think what was lucky about the situation that I got into, and I think this podcast may be more oriented towards later career folks, but if there are any current college students who are thinking about careers who take a listen to this, what, what I would say is go work at the best place that you can with the smartest people that you can in the most challenging way that you can, and then work your rear end off. And I had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people who gave me some great opportunities. And it was just sort of a situation where one opportunity led to the next. And so it was not ever, okay, I'm not going to do this other path. It was more, man, this is a great challenge. And oh, you know, here's an opportunity to go work on something really interesting and challenging. And so it was following that path of opportunities that led me sort of led me to where I ended up. Yeah, but there was at least some intentionality in the move back to Nashville. Um, so kind of talk about that. And Yeah, so so I always thought I wanted to live in Nashville. I joke with folks that I love Nashville like some people love the Grateful Dead. It is just an irrational obsession. Nashville obviously doesn't have beach weather and doesn't have the mountains, but it is a great place with great people. And it's a place that I love very much and is very meaningful to me. So yes, it was an intentional move back to Nashville to get back home. My sister sister lived here. My parents lived here. And, and it was a, a good opportunity for me to get back to Nashville and, and found a good good job continuing to work in, in financial services. And so I enjoyed that move. That, that move was intentional, uh, as was the next move, uh, the move into public service, which is a little bit of an interesting story. So I mentioned that I was doing some venture capital investing. I was actually working for a state-sponsored venture capital fund separate from Avondale Partners, the firm that I was at at the time. I was on the board of three or four nonprofits, had started a public policy and politics discussion group that met monthly, was married, had two kids at the time, was doing too many things and was probably doing none of them well and had a bit of an existential moment about, you know, what is it that I enjoy this work? I enjoy the work that I was doing, the investment banking and, and venture capital. I enjoy that work, but I keep doing all these other things, the nonprofits and public policy, that clearly there's something pulling me in that direction. And there was a sort of existential moment. And literally at that moment, and this is where happenstance or luck plays in, there's a, an email I got from Nashville Post, a local news source that said, mayor's ECD chief leaves to join the state. And the person who had the role of director of economic and community development 
under then Mayor Dean, um, had gone to be Governor Haslam's communications director. And I didn't know what ECD stood for, much less what the job was. But as I looked into it a little bit, economic and community development sounded like the combination of what I had been doing professionally, working on business deals with what I was clearly drawn to in public policy and public service. And so I just called a friend who worked in the mayor's office and said, this is a little bit out of left field, but I'd love to come talk to you guys about this. And he said, yes, that's totally out of left field, but you should talk to this person. And so I came in and 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 asked for the job and ultimately was able to to get it. And that really has been um, it was it was a professional joy for me, uh, the people who I got to work with and and the opportunities I got to have. Yeah, and that's that was a while, a long a long stint, right? I mean, it was, yeah. So that was in 2011. Uh, it was right before Carl Dean was reelected to his second term, and so I served out his second term from 11 to 15. And then the next mayor elected, Megan Barry asked me to stay on in that role, which I did, was excited to do. She then ended up leaving office, but her successor, David Briley, asked me to stay on. So I served out his term. So I actually ended up staying there for eight years under yeah. three different mayors before making my next professional move. Yeah. But in that time, uh, before that move, like that role really, as you said, took kind of the best from professional, vocational, and kind of what you love to do all in service of this town you love so much. And I think that was a period where really, like, I don't know, I, w- I kept attributing it all to you. Like, you'd see new festivals come in, you'd see new businesses come in. Like, that that was the kind of thing that you were doing to kind of grow economic opportunity for the people of Nashville and and the greater region, I would imagine, as well. So Yeah, w- I mean, there, there was tremendous success. I mean, look, timing in life is critically important, but I think it was a, a situation where the administration in place at the time met the moment in a really special way. And so there was a tremendous amount of success that Nashville had at the time. I think there are some lessons learned that we can we can talk about later here, but I think that there was there was a lot of success. Nashville was sort of at that moment where it had been sort of passed over, looked over. There had always been great things about Nashville, some as basic as central time zone and three interstates in intersecting in Nashville. But some more important ones, like before Nashville is known as Music City, was known as the Athens of the South. Uh, There are 20 colleges and universities in the Nash, greater Nashville area, 120,000 students, uh, 26, 27,000 graduates each year. And that talent pipeline was really important for businesses. And once folks started looking at, at that and saw no state income tax, favorable business environment, businesses really got excited about moving to Nashville and there was just tremendous success. So in those eight years, the unemployment rate fell from 8.1% to 2.0%. Uh, and I was not an economics major, but took a couple <laughs> economics classes. And uh, my recollection- <laughs> my, my my recollection is that the floor was that unemployment couldn't go below 5% because there's just a natural level. And, and so there was a lot of success in the city. Wages grew and, and there were great opportunities in the city at the time. And so I think, you know, there was also a lot of growth and, and, and there can be growing pains to a fast changing, fast evolving city. But but there certainly was a lot of excitement and, and companies like Alliance Bernstein and Amazon moved there. Lyft opened its first office outside of the Bay Area. And so it was a real interesting mix of businesses that were opening up offices in Nashville. And that's really changed the job landscape there, which has been great for the city. Yeah. And so kind of riding that success, but knowing there were other opportunities to make some 
of that kind of monumental change or even tiny change that would help a lot of people, you took a different role. Yeah, I mean, this was, I, I referenced earlier that there are challenges and unintended consequences. And I think one of the challenges of all the growth was was rapidly rising housing costs. Look, like any other good, it's an issue of supply and demand. And the fo- there were more people moving to Nashville at higher wages than there were new housing units being built, particularly housing units that were affordable to folks at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And so, so there was a real affordability issue, as there was a, a, in many urban cities across the country, but it was even just more accelerated in Nashville because of the growth dynamics of the city. And so when you attract Amazon to move part of their second headquarters to Nashville, and when you attract Alliance Bernstein, you sort of look around and you're like, I think we've kind of done what we can do in terms of the job piece of that. I worked with with then Mayor Briley to develop a $750 million affordable housing program that we proposed. And as a part of that effort, I moved over to MDHA, which is Metropolitan Development and Housing Agency, which is the public housing authority in Nashville to help execute a piece of that. And, and MDHA, and, and there could be a whole podcast just on this, but MDHA had taken advantage of a, a, a change in HUD policy before sort of 2012, all of the public housing in all the United States was owned by Department of Housing and Urban Development. And they would pay a subsidy to local public housing authorities to operate those, but they owned the buildings in the dirt. The Obama administration had something called RAD, Rental Assistance Demonstration Project, whereby the local PHAs could take ownership of the buildings. And MDHA did that. So they own all the land, own all the buildings, and initiated a redevelopment proposal for roughly half of the units that MDHA owns that were located in six sites sort of around the core of downtown. And the plan is to replace the existing housing on a one-for-one basis, actually a little bit more than one-for-one, 1.2-for-one, to expand the number of HUD-subsidized units that are affordable to low-income individuals. But to when you rebuild, to do that in a mixed-income way so that it's 40% uh, of the units are these low-income units, 20% of what we call workforce that are income-restricted to folks making between 80% and 120% of area median income, and then 40% are just market rate. And so the idea is that you're evolving these areas of concentrated poverty into mixed income, mixed use neighborhoods that will have, we think, better health outcomes, better educational outcomes, better job opportunities, lower crime, better serve the residents who are there and do it in a mixed income way. And so I moved over to MDHA to help be a part of that redevelopment initiative that MDHA was working on. And I know you haven't been there that long, but is there any like evidence that like this is working or we we will we'll see, we'll see it work? Yeah, the the early results are actually quite affirming. So we are still very early. I mentioned there are six sites. The largest, the first one we started working on is actually the largest. It's KC, which is over in East Nashville. And we are probably 35% of the way through the process of redeveloping KC. So there's still a long way to go. And and when I say 35%, you know, many of the buildings just opened literally this year. January yeah. one opened, February one opened. Um, we've got a, another one um, that's going to open up here in, a, in another month or so. Um, so it's still very early. But the rents that we've been able to generate from the market rate units have exceeded our pro formas. So economically, it's performing. We've been able to attract people to these units, which has been uh, reassuring. And um, most importantly, I think for the residents, who, and I should say, and this is most important, we made a commitment 
that no resident would be displaced through this process. So we're doing it in a slow and gradual way where the existing residents move into the new units as they're built. And so they aren't, you know, we're not tearing apart the social fabric. And this whole plan was developed with the residents. And there was a lot of skepticism. I mean, it's no secret to anyone listening to this podcast that governments and private institutions have made lots of promises to lots of people that have not come true and that have had lots of unintended consequences. And so there was a lot of skepticism about the Envision process. And um, I think probably one of the biggest signs of the success of thus far is the incredible resident buy-in to it. I mean, residents uh, believe in what we're doing and, and there's always criticism, there's always constructive criticism about how things can be done better. But, but the resident buy-in is one important signal. And then the second is that crime has dropped by about 40% in the Casey neighborhood since this redevelopment process started. And it's not just because of the redevelopment. I think we, we're, we're working better with police in more neighborhood and community policing efforts that have made a big difference. But, but I think it is not a surprise to hear that when a city invests in a community, that community takes ownership and things improve. It is when people feel ignored, feel neglected, don't feel hope for better opportunities um, that, that things really start to go awry. Yeah, yeah. So my guess is you'll be here for a while to see the fruits of those laborers see themselves out. But what in the in the larger scale, like I'm serving this town or, or doing service in general. Like I'm sure you have lots of kids now and you're kind of serving all kinds of things, but how do you think about kind of what the, either what the future is or how you round out this kind of public service with everything else you do? Sure. I mean, I, so if, if this is the last job, so I, I should say um, this will be a, a timestamp on this conversation. Um, our executive director has announced he's uh, retiring and moving on. So we are actually in a, in a search for a new executive director. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see who that person is and, and, and whether the person wants to continue the initiatives that we're undertaking now. So I could be gone in a few months uh, and looking for, for a new gig. But if, if this is the last job that I have, I think I will feel very excited about the contributions that I've been able to make to my city. Work in finance, sell the city I love for eight years, and then and then work on redeveloping housing and improving the lives for, for residents in, in Nashville, particularly low-income residents. That would be a great career if that's what it ends up being. But elected office is still something that if the timing is right and if the opportunities are right, it's something that I think I'd want to consider. It, you know, i I love this city, and I think there are some great opportunities to continue to improve and, and make an impact in a, in a broader way. And if that opportunity presents itself, it's certainly something I'd want to consider. Yeah, yeah. So what haven't I asked you that I should ask you about the whole road, the whole journey from being a 20-year-old to now? You know, I, I think... Someone listening to this podcast is probably looking for inspiration or, or at least an interesting lesson learned. And I feel so fortunate. I guess what I would say is go work with the best people that you can, even if it's not necessarily in a career or a particular line of work, um, just getting to work with really smart people and working on interesting, challenging things tends to present a lot of opportunities. And for me, that's made all the difference. Being able to work with people who I really admire and, and have learned a lot from has been a great blessing for, for me. And by the way, who were you 
as a seventh grader? Uh, you know, I think I was still a excited, happy, optimistic, aggressive, fun-loving person who, you know, wanted to go serve the city. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you are still that. All of those things, fun-loving and youthful, probably uh, tops among those. And I just wish you the best. And I, I think Nashville's all the richer to have you back home. And may it be many, many, many more years in that city that you love. Well, thank you. That, that means a lot. It, it's great to reconnect with you. And congratulations on, on this podcast. I think it's a, a great gift to a lot of uh, a lot of people who are out there trying to figure out what path is the right one for them. And I think like, just getting to walk on the path is a pretty exciting thing, too, right? Just the path itself is, is, is the joy, the journey. Exactly. Well, thanks again. You bet. That was Matt Wilcher, a proud son of Nashville, Tennessee, doing all he can to build and strengthen the city he loves. After a 15-year career in investment banking, he finally turned to public service, becoming the director of the Mayor's Office of Economic and Community Development under multiple mayors. He's currently Chief Strategy and Intergovernmental Affairs Officer at Nashville's Metropolitan Development and Housing Agency. This show is about reconnecting with old friends and making new ones and learning about the million different ways we can create meaningful lives for ourselves. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts and tell a friend about us. Point them to roadstakenshow.com or have them tune in to hear another friend with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on the next episode of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.